friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we've got the second part of the interview with Kristen Dumay from Pepperdine's Harbor event uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, some of you asked, like, hey, where, where's the second part of this? And honestly, I just didn't want to put, like, two episodes back-to-back week after week. I don't know. I just felt like it was, you know, I don't know, too much Jesus and John Wayne. I don't know. Maybe I should have just put them in a row because they're kind of connected. But uh, we're doing it now. And I got a couple of things I want to cover before we get to that. Uh, let me tell you. A few important things. Uh, I think they're important to me, so I want to share them with you. So it's not a full rant, but I've got a few things I want to talk about. Uh, first and foremost, today is the day after Father's Day, and for some people, uh, it was a great day yesterday to celebrate. For others, uh, it, it's a complicated day. Um, we all have different emotions and experiences when it comes to remembering our parents. Couple, I guess it was back in May, uh, actually, the week that this. Uh, interview with Kristen was actually recorded. Uh, on the Monday before that, I recorded a video that was going to play at the church I'm a part of on Sunday because I was gone that week. And then the following weekend, we had um, a cheer competition in the other side of the world from not in California where I was, but down in Florida. And so I was not going to be at our church. And so I recorded the seven minute video and uh, my coworker, Jerry, said, look, you sound too depressed in that video. Do something different. And I was like, cool. Thanks, Jerry. I appreciate that. And I probably was right, but I, I got a little bit too into the feelings, as the kids say, about uh, Mother's Day. And so my experience with Mother's Day is probably similar to the way some of you experience Father's Day. We're just a, it's, a, it's a weird day. It's a sad day. Uh, some of us, it's just a day that we remember what we've lost and people that we've cared deeply about. And um, on... I think it was maybe a couple days before uh, Mother's Day, I was at my gym, and for some reason there was this uh, random song that I think is like a Brazilian pop song or something. The gym I go to, the guy who runs it is Brazilian, and uh, you know, so that that that's on. So we, that's what we do, and so usually I can't like understand the lyrics because my Portuguese is rather lacking these days but for some reason i hear the song and it's talking about moms and i guess there's some english in it or something and i'm in the middle of the workout and all of a sudden like i just get get lost in my feelings and i'm just kind of taken aback by it and so i literally like step away from what i'm doing and there's a, a, a guy that i'm working out with uh my buddy gamboa and he doesn't understand like i'm in my feelings I'm, I'm going someplace with my grief right now and so he just like says hey all right do this first thing and then do the second thing he thinks i'm just like intellectually not able to focus on the task at hand and so he starts walking me through it and what he didn't realize is that not only was he helping me get like get the work done i was supposed to be doing in that class he kind of like reminded me and refocused me on where like i should be and what i should be doing um in that moment like of to be to be present where i am and sometimes in our grief, you need someone to say, no, you, you can do this and then you can do that one thing at a time and to focus on like what's actually right in front of you, not not to diminish or to, to put the, the feelings aside, but to say there's a way to deal with these feelings and there's a way to acknowledge the pain and the hurt that you have. And for some of us on Father's Day, it would be easy just to step away and to walk away from what we're feeling. But hopefully I would encourage you, if this is a day that's been hard for you, if it brings up conflicted uh, emotions and complicated feelings, I encourage you to just do what's right in front of you and to be in this moment, to be present to where you are and to know that the God who does not abandon you, the one who often is referred to in scripture as your heavenly father is right there with you. And hopefully the presence of your heavenly father can help you deal with the pain that comes with talking about your earthly father. And 
yeah, I hope you have a friend who can do that for you. And if not, hopefully I can be a friend via uh, your headphones right now helping you do that. Uh, so anyway, I hope you had a Father's Day that was meaningful. And for some of us, it's a really celebratory day like me. Father's Day is a great day. I've got a great uh, relationship with my dad, and I love being a father. And there's nothing I love more in this world than being a father. And so it's a great day. And I'm recording this a few days beforehand, so I hope that uh, my wife and my daughters do really cool stuff for me because I really like when they do cool stuff for me, um, like food and stuff. Like maybe they give me candy. I like that as well. So if they're listening right now and they didn't do that, maybe they can go back and update that. But if you had a great day, like hopefully I'm anticipating having, wonderful if it's a day with a lot of feelings. I hope that's meaningful for you as well. Uh, Second thing I want to talk about. Had a cool experience this past week. Uh, I was in Nashville last Sunday. I preached for my dear friend, Josh Graves. And after that, Scott Sauls, uh, who was the last episode on the podcast. We had recorded a couple weeks before. And Scott, as we were wrapping up our phone call, said, hey, if you're going to be in Nashville on June 14th, come to my book release party. And I said, I'm preaching in Nashville July 12th. I'll be there the 13th. Might as well stay over an extra day. And come check this out. And so I show up thinking I have one friend who I knew was going to be there. Scott said, hey, book release, you know Annie Downs. Annie's going to be there. And I said, oh, cool. And so I text Annie. She said, yeah, I'm going to be there. I said, cool, let's hang out. I haven't seen you in a while. And so I'm coming to Scott's party. I'm going to hang out with Annie. And I don't know anyone else there. It's Nashville, not my town, not my city. I don't know these people. You know, it's, I figure it's a bunch of Presbyterians. Like, I don't know what that party's going to be like. And so I show up and I'm there for a few minutes and I text Annie. I'm like, where are you? And she goes, oh my goodness, family situation, not here. Um, I was like, cool. Um, and then I start looking around the room and I realize, uh, like there, there's people that I've recorded podcasts with who are actually in the room, multiple people that I knew in the room just because of the podcast. And so it turned out to be a great night. Obviously Scott's book is great. I hope you got a copy of it. And like, it just reminds me like the, the neat connections that have emerged because of this podcast and one of the people uh, at the thing was saying, hey, w- w- why do you do the podcast? And uh, this is, who was this guy? Um, it's an Instagram handle, uh, something about Instagram, uh, or something about the Enneagram on Instagram. There's a billion of them. Uh, sorry, forgot, forgot who they are. But anyway, they're great people. Uh, very nice. And they said, why do you like doing the podcast? And I said, honestly, it's about the connections I've made. And connections to the people in the room there that I got to see, like literally the person sitting next to me at dinner was someone who was just on the podcast. Um, the Truth Tables, Truth Table uh, podcast with Akimini and Doctor Edmondson. It was Christine Edmondson who happened to be sitting right next to me. I was like, "Hey, I know you because of like two months ago we did a podcast." But there's so many of you I've got to know because of this, and it's such uh, a neat blessing. So many relationships that have been formed, and uh, I just want to express uh, my gratitude for that. So. Thank you for all uh, all you who listen, who support, who've been a part of this show in one way or the other. And uh, yeah, very grateful for y'all. Uh, next thing I want to talk about, haven't done a mailbag podcast in a while, and I feel like it's time to, to do another one of those. So if you've got uh, questions you want us to talk about on the podcast, I might have some friends help me with them. I might do it solo. You don't know, but hopefully in July, I want to put some, uh, answer some mailbag podcasts or mailbag questions on the podcast. So if you got questions, send them to luke at com, or send me a direct message on Instagram. That is my social media of choice. If you send it on like Facebook or Twitter or something, like I might get it, but Instagram, I definitely 
Lord willing, we'll get it. Uh, also, Luke at LukeNorsley.com is the email. So send it over there. And I uh, would love to talk to you about uh, whatever you want to talk about. And love doing these mailbags. It's a great way to interact. I enjoy them. So um, send in your questions, and uh, we'll do it that way. But uh, without further ado, Kristen Dumais is back on the podcast. This is the second part. We're going to do some questions. We're going to do some interaction. It's a lot of fun. It's a live recording, so I think the actual conversation is uh, is really special. It's cool to hear the crowd. Uh, everyone like kind of engages the energy. It's great, which you can pick it up through the audio. But the actual audio between me and Kristen, not ideal because um, you know, I don't have my microphones. I'm not recording it myself. And uh, so, you know, you, you get the content, you get the energy, but you don't have the great audio quality. But you're going to be fine with that because, you know, you guys are grown-ups. You're going to be cool for one week having it like this. So uh, without further ado, here is Kristen Dume. Kristen Dume is right here. Next to me, everyone say hi to her. Hi. I just assume that I'm going to Oh, like I, I start because I just start talking. Okay, so, so I'd like y'all to meet my friend Liz. <laughs> um, I only know him as a podcaster. Turns out he's also a pastor, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been fun. Yeah, yeah. that's a beautiful introduction. I really appreciate that. <laughs> that's why you're the best seller of us. Beautiful introductions like that. How many of you were here yesterday? Okay, most of you. So. Um, We've got some questions we're going to jump into. Uh, first, when I was a kid, my mom said, if you say something mean, you've got to say something nice to like balance it out. And so maybe we can just, I want to give you a few names and maybe you can say something nice about it. <laughs> okay, let's start with your favorite um, character that's been picked on the silver screen, which is William Wallace. Okay. Is there like John Wayne here? Come on. Uh, okay, William Wallace. Yeah. yeah what, say one nice thing about William Wallace. Um, he's got great hair. That's true. That's true. Okay. John Eldridge. John Eldridge. Yeah, I think I, I have not met him. I have. Yeah, and I, I think he is a kind-hearted man with very good intentions. Mm-hmm. He once hung up on me during a podcast. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> I was actually on sabbatical, and I didn't think, hey, I should stop doing the podcast on sabbatical. And so I tell him 10 minutes into the interview, I'm like, hey, blah, 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 I'm sabbatical. He goes, what are you doing? And I go, I, I don't know. And he goes, I love you, Luke, bye. And he hung up. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm not podcasting for the next month and a half. So that was nice of him. That was very nice of him. Okay. Um, John Wayne. John Wayne. Oh, uh, yeah, I grew up watching John Wayne reruns on uh, weekend television. So uh, there's John Wayne the persona, right? Heroic, good stories, and then there's John Wayne the person. And uh, I don't feel as qualified to weigh in on uh, John Wayne the person, honestly. Um, I mean, there's a lot there. Uh, John Wayne the persona, you know, at its best, he can, he can inspire people to courage and... Um, uh, and Honor at its best. That's good. That was really hard. I couldn't add any qualifications. <laughs> what is the word that the New York Times used to describe you? It starts with the word book and ends with ish. <laughs> Wasn't it bookish and slight? Yes, that's what it was. Are we still liking it? <laughs> it could have been much worse. Much worse. I could have called much worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's always cool. Okay. So, uh, we appreciate your bookish and slight persona meeting with us. Did John Wayne say the line, life is hard, it's even harder if you're stupid? Is that John Wayne? 
<laughs> nope. No one else. Heard. I feel like I've seen a picture. I mean, you probably have, and uh, yeah, it doesn't mean that you said it. Okay. <laughs> but it was on the internet. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have a couple items from yesterday that we're going to try to work through. I'm not sure we can get through all of these. Um, so we've got like, for example, we have the arts. So maybe we just do thumbs up, thumbs down. We like the arts. Like awesome. January 6th. Thumbs up, thumbs down. <laughs> like every January 6th, we just refer to last Okay, we're going to get through these guys specifically. Uh, 1920s Germany. I feel like that's a thumbs down. I feel like we're... Yeah. Yeah, that's a thumbs down. Um... Especially 1930s, of course. Yeah, 1930s, 70s, and more. I haven't read the book yet. Don't spoil it for me. <laughs> uh, that's a dark joke. I'm sorry, my bad. Um, okay, how about this? Let's start with um, uh, the arts. The actual question is: like, How do artistic depictions influence the way that we understand masculinity? And obviously, John Wayne is the uh, like the main character in the book, mm-hmm. really. but like he's yeah. he's there. But in some ways, he's an artistic representation of this idealized masculinity. And this is a little bit before my time, so I'm not like a John Wayne scholar. And by that, I don't think I've ever actually seen one of his movies. So, um, <laughs> what was that? My attention? <laughs> I need to be rectified. It does. And I just learned yesterday that John Wayne left his beach house to Pepperdine University. Really? Unfortunately, they sold it, but, uh... <laughs> yeah. Is there a chance that you could write Jesus and John Dutton? Because <laughs> I could go on Yellowstone if you want. Okay, so the arts, the arts. Uh, let, me, uh, let me just say that one of the things I do in my book is I, uh, I suggest that there's a lot more to faith and to faith formation than just sitting and reading your Bible, or just what you hear from your um, your preacher on a Sunday morning, right? That there are all sorts of things that inform um, how we understand who we are, who God is, and how we are to be in the world. And so if you think about music, Christian music, for example, very powerful. I mean, how many of you listen to Christian radio, right? And how many of you will listen to it for hours and hours and hours a week? <laughs> and and then think about um, I mean if you go between beneath the surface a little bit I mean, there are aesthetic qualities some people like the style some people can't listen to the style uh, but they do stylistic things aesthetic but then there's also the substance of it and who determines what gets written produced and played on Christian radio there is a whole lot to that story and we could talk about theology we could talk about race. Uh, and we could talk about um, politics. And an artist who has beautiful scriptural songs who says the wrong thing politically is not going to get signed to a major record label in many cases. In many cases, will not get played on the most popular Christian uh, radio stations. And this is all invisible to those of us who are the consumers, unless we, we are very intentional about looking at that um, and, and asking who is really shaping our uh, religious formation. That's just Christian music. I'm actually doing much more on that in my next book. Um, but in terms of film, too. Uh, and and you know, we could talk about Mel Gibson's, not just his uh, uh, brave heart, but the passion. Uh, those sorts of films, but also just our ideals of what is heroic, what is good, and what is true. 
and then which sources, whether uh, produced in Christian contexts or just embraced as Christian, um, and then kind of you know showed in sermon clips and at youth group meetings and so on, how that shapes our imagination of who Jesus is and what it means to follow Jesus. I think that's very important. And often uh, Christians aren't very critical about that. We just take it, if it's labeled Christian, we take it as it must be good, instead of being a lot more critical about who is shaping that, who is being excluded, what concepts and ideas are being excluded, and why. And sometimes there are political reasons. Often there's, there are financial reasons. Some things sell better. I mean, did you know that the primary audience for Christian uh, uh, music, Christian radio, is uh, 30 to 40-something white women who have um, three kids in a minivan are listening to Christian radio as they drive around. It has to be safe and, um, and harmless. Uh, is our faith safe and harmless always? But was John Wayne seen as... Like a Christian? But, no, but, no, but obviously. Okay, but kind of cool. There are rumors circulating uh, that he converted to evangelicalism at his death. After his death, these rumors still circulate, uh, and so no, he was not Christian. He um, he possibly converted to Catholicism very close to his death, but no, he was not a practicing Christian and exemplar at all. But what he did do is he embodied this uh, quote unquote traditional, or you may want to call it retrograde masculinity. He became an, became an icon of conservative white American masculinity in the 1960s and 70s in particular, and he became a symbol of a cultural and political set of ideals, and many conservative evangelicals identified with those cultural and political ideals, and therefore, when you start seeing books on Christian manhood that say things like, we all know John Wayne is the icon of masculinity, right? Instead of saying, as Christians, that Jesus is the paragon of what exactly. humanity is. So, because of a uh, political uh, ideology which they ascribe to, which happens concurrently with their religious convictions, they've merged those together, and therefore the paragon for masculinity becomes someone who's not even within faith, but they just become kind of consumed into it. Exactly, exactly. And what happens is when you conflate those two and embrace those two together, uh, you lose the ability to prophetically critique uh, ideals of masculinity, of militancy, of political uh, agendas, right? When you've so conflated your faith within a, a political agenda or a cultural ideal, you no longer have that position where you can, you can say, you know, is this actually what Jesus would do? I feel like you probably shared this on social, but someone, uh, kind of folks on family-ish in the 80s or 70s put out this uh, thing talking about masculinity, and the two paragons they held up were O.J. Simpson, and uh, the second name that they had in there was Bruce Jenner. And so... That didn't make a lot. I'm 40 now, so I have a filter, and so I'm not going to say any color comments. But that's the same problem, is that we're marrying this idea of masculinity with something that, trend, that that's not within kind of the bounds of Christianity. 
Yeah, and often these, these uh, kind of cultural ideals are so powerful that they end up shaping our vision of Christianity and our vision of who Jesus is instead of being rooted in Christian teachings and letting that shape our idea of what it is to be in this world. But we're always kind of grasping for, um, and particularly in this consumer culture and in this media-saturated culture, we're grasping for symbols and for heroes. And I think there must be a kind of basic human psychological need for that. But uh, we need to show some restraint and really test our heroes, our ideals, against the teachings of Scripture. And the thing about Scripture, and particularly uh, the way of Christ, is it's, it's very countercultural, isn't it? And if we turn Jesus into a hero, I mean, we, we can do that, but it's not the hero that fits the pattern of our worldly heroes at all. And what it means to follow Christ, right, it requires, it's usually not dazzling, and it's usually not, um, it doesn't feel super empowering, and it's not supposed to, and the teachings of Jesus are always about uh, giving, giving of yourself, divesting of yourself, dying to yourself. And, I mean, there's something heroic about that. It takes a whole lot of courage to do that, but it doesn't necessarily look like the heroism that we like to display on the silver screen. And so when we are um, kind of tempted to grasp this really self-glorifying heroism in one that, that kind of is a self-righteous one that is going to justify what you wanted to do anyway and make you feel really good about it, then we are losing the radical call to discipleship, and we are actually undercutting that. We're working directly against that. Yeah. Uh, one of the critiques of what Mark Driscoll uh, has done, uh, especially early on in his ministry, is that he spent more time making men, stereotypical men, and less on making them Christian. And so there's a there's like this compilation of becoming really masculine in a retrograde. I feel like that was your term, which I kind of like that. Um, instead of the fruit of the spirit, like no one ever talks about masculinity is love, joy, peace, patience, kind. Like that's not like upheld as this is the paradigm of masculinity looks like. Um, the arts have existed for as long as humanity has existed. Um, do we see different pictures of masculinity that have kind of popped up that we've? I don't know if you've done research on this, but the way that we've tied different uh, cultural images of masculinity to Christianity, not just the John Wayne recently, but going back further. Mm, yeah, so that's not my, my strength, and I don't, um, I'm sure that other people could offer really good alternatives culturally, artistically. Uh, what I would say is look outside of dominant white cultures um, to see some different models of Jesus, um, culturally, religiously, and then also depicted in the arts. So if you go to Latin American theologies of liberation, for example, um, and uh, you could look at the black prophetic tradition very much and you see not just the teachings in those communities. And, and just to be clear, like all, all cultural depictions of Jesus, no matter which ethnicity, cultural location, racial group, are going to be limited, right? Like nobody gets the full picture. But if you've been fully immersed in one, and particularly in a dominant tradition, and maybe especially a dominant tradition that embraces its dominance, and kind of sanctifies it, then it can be really liberating to explore other cultural depictions of who Jesus is, and it can uh, just help you see some of your own blind spots. Yeah. It probably would be a bit short-sighted to assume that modern visions of 
masculinity influenced what happened on January 6th. I think we probably could connect the dots on that. Uh, the next question is on January 6th, and so I, I've got a phone call to make, so I'm just going to leave. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, there's a difference, though, in how this conversation is for you than it is for me, and yeah. you have a different kind of work, and so it, it's, yeah. it's going to be handled differently. Yeah, so I have tenure and it's very hard to fire me. So that's a difference. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't have anything like that. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm not a pastor. I am a, um, I'm, I'm a historian, and historians tend to be quite critical. Uh, we're trying to explain how things work and how one thing leads to another even sometimes unintentionally. And um, particularly, I happen to be a, a historian of religion, gender, and power. And, and so there's some, um, uh, some not so um, wonderful conclusions that can be drawn in some, some places. All which is to say, yes, this is, this is um, my thing, and I don't mind talking about this. Uh, I think we need to talk about it. I think we need to talk about it a lot more, actually. So let me, let me say what I saw on January 6th. And, um, and what I saw in the aftermath of January 6th in evangelical spaces, in white evangelical spaces in particular. I mean, on that day, I watched in almost disbelief. It felt surreal. and It probably felt the same way for you. And particularly because I couldn't tell, I mean, yes, this is a, this is a in real time threat to our democracy. But it also felt like um, almost play acting on the part of participants. Like they weren't even sure if what they were doing was real. Um, but it was, it was, and there was violence, and it was an attempt to um, uh, subvert our democratic system. As a scholar of evangelicalism, and somebody who, who speaks in the media about evangelicals a lot, in those moments, I just watch very closely. I follow people, prominent figures, um, ordinary folks, and just see how are they grappling with this. On January 6th, in the first couple of days, I saw a lot of denial. This is not us, this is Antifa. And I could see that particularly on social media and especially on Facebook where a lot of white evangelicals are, and not coincidentally, it was Franklin Graham, a very prominent influencer in those spaces who was leading with that claim. And then as that became less tenable, there was a lot of silence. And people just not talking about it. And then I started to hear from various foreigners we don't condone violence, but. And essentially defense of what, what happened. Now, I will say the vast majority of white evangelicals were not storming the Capitol on January 6th, right? And the vast majority would not have done that. But as a historian of evangelicalism, one of the things I really focus on in my book and in my analysis is what is the relationship between the mainstream and the fringe? Right? They were, those were fringe elements on January 6th. I actually care less about them than I do about the response of mainstream folks. And that's where it's somewhat concerning, the patterns that I see. Because in evangelical spaces, for so long, there's been this us versus them mentality. You're either with us or against us. And those who are with us are really anybody in your group and often anybody to the right of you, kind of the way this functions often in, in evangelical organizations and communities, anybody who crosses a line, wherever that line might be to the left, is against us. And so that can be an unhealthy dynamic, particularly in this moment, 
when there are some very radical elements that are not being uh, disciplined or uh, uh, pushed back against within the mainstream. That very much is a theme of Jesus and John Wayne, and that's my concern when I look at an event like January 6th. And then, yes, we can talk about this warrior masculinity, this rhetoric that's, that millions of evangelical men have absorbed, absorbed over the last 20, 30 years. Every man uh, has a battle to fight, and for most men, that is metaphorical, right? Um, these are men who are wearing khaki pants and polo shirts and, um, you know, and reading books, doing book studies, right? Um, but, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And, um, but at a certain point, you hear over and over again this kind of call to righteous violence, metaphorically. But what happens when some people start enacting that? Um, do you have the wisdom, the restraint, the potential for alarm, or do you now have a value system in which there is a place for this? And that is what I'm watching very closely. That's what I was watching on January 6th. And that's what I'm watching, frankly, in terms of uh, the evangelical, the mainstream evangelical posture towards um, uh, some threats to American democracy right now. So as a historian, it's your job to be critical, um, which, first of all, it's very enlightening. I didn't realize I had so many historians in my church. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know <laughs> when, so when I see January 6th and I see, uh, like, Forgotten Country, that sort of rhetoric, where it's it's merged, the vision for what they think being patriotic is, is also merged with what they think the vision of being a Christ follower is, like that's really concerning for me yeah. uh, in, in my work. H historically, how does that stuff typically play out? <laughs> not well, not well at all. Right, again, you lose the prophetic stance to say, you know, is this country, as you define it, Christian, is this, you know, Christian America, as you have labeled it, is it Christ-following? Uh, back in the early 80s, three Christian historians wrote a book in search of Christian America. And one of them was my graduate uh, advisor, George Marston. So George Marston, Nathan Hatch, and, um, oh, and Mark Knoll. And... Uh, so, evangelical, white evangelical men, Christian historians wrote this book as evangelicals to their fellow evangelicals, warning against the spiritual dangers of Christian nationalism, of claiming that America was a Christian nation. First of all, they, they show the historical problems with that. Historically speaking, what does it mean to be a Christian nation? Really, if you go back to the colonial times, uh, okay, so uh, enslaving African Americans, um, cool, um, right? Pushing, uh, pushing out and killing Native Americans, right? This is what Christian Americans were doing, and that's just basic American history, right? This was they were not influenced by CRT, I promise you. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, at what point? Like, so they ask this question: How many acts does it take? to like ruin Christian America. At what point do you, you, you have to say this is not Christian America, right? And that's just a, a basic, you know, question of historical analysis. But then there, I think the most powerful critique 
uh, was to their fellow evangelicals in that present moment, saying that if you adopt this essentially idolatry of Christian America, you lose your ability to be salt and light in this country. And so for them, it was primarily a spiritual threat. Now, I would agree, it's absolutely a spiritual threat, and it is um, a threat uh, to, uh, to our democratic norms and institutions. I'm not familiar with the book that you referenced. Uh, I'm familiar with Greg Boyd's book, yes. The Myth of the Christian Nation, yeah. which came out probably early 2000s. Yes. And once that book came out, from kind of my distance, understanding of what happened in his local context, is that his church probably uh, split it did. Uh, functionally. And um, I, I don't think he's the only one who's experienced something like that. Why do you think that response is the common response to talking about Christian nationalism? Yeah, I think that Christian nationalism has just been so infused in the faith that people have embraced for so long. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is to go into Hobby Lobby. And um, <laughs> Hobby Lobby and Evangelical Craft Store, you probably know that. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> You can Google what has been doing in Hobby Lobby. You can read a couple of pieces and see some of the pictures I've taken. Uh, and you enjoy this, don't you? <laughs> very <laughs> much, very much. Um, yeah, my daughters are my research assistants. They love trips to Hobby Lobby, and my little one always sports some dollhouse furniture, and uh, it's something we do every, every few months just to check in on things. Um, <laughs> so, yes, um, and, I mean, the decor, the home decor, the wall decor, it is absolutely infused with Christian nationalism and American flag crosses. And uh, I, I kneel for the cross, stand for the flag, right? Um, these, uh, and it's, it's meant to, and they are, these products are, are widely purchased and put on the walls of homes as a sign of who we are in this family and what we believe and what we hold to. And for generations now, this Christian nationalism has infused Christianity in white evangelical spaces such that for many it's really hard to separate the two. So when somebody critiques this idolatry of Christian nationalism, it feels like a critique of your faith itself. And that should be a real warning. That, uh, you know, if we open the scriptures together, we need to be able to open the scriptures together still and say, is this faithful? But the pushback is so stark and the backlash against pastors who try to address this is often so brutal. And what it takes is, it takes all of us, right? If you're pastors, we often are saying, you know, why aren't pastors bolder or why aren't pastors? No, you see what happens to those who are. We need people in the pews to speak out against this. And that's going to be uncomfortable because it's going to be your friend in the small group who's going to be saying something to you to say, you know what, I, I, I hear where you're coming from, but, but let's open the scriptures together. And do you see how the sweet nature's in that conversation? Probably won't go well. I'm sorry, it probably won't. But it might. And, and, and this faithful presence of, of continuing to have these conversations. But it takes all of us and we can't be the ones who just stay quiet because it's, it's safer that way and it's easier and we can maintain um, uninterrupted relationships and friendships. It takes all of us right now.
from my perspective, there are a lot of good people, well-intentioned people, who think, I love Jesus. Yes. I believe Jesus is my king and my savior, and I will follow Jesus. I also live in America, and I'm really grateful for my country. Mm-hmm. And I understand that there are people who make substantial sacrifices to create a country like ours that's not perfect. And they see two things that are both uh, good, uh, and there's an inability to differentiate and prioritize one over the other. And Augustine talks about sin is a disordered love. And when you can't say, my first allegiance is kingdom of God, and I happen to be located here in America, and so I can appreciate and respect the country I'm from uh, as my second uh, citizenship, all of a sudden you get this. And you can't like do much with this yeah. because it's just it's stuck. And I think you're right that like everyone has to be able to, to talk about it. But I think one of the first things we have to do is to be able to have language to say, I really am grateful for America. I, I see the good things in our country, but I care most of all about the kingdom of God. Without um, ha- having to be like, I'm getting rid of both of them. Because then sometimes I feel like the critique makes some of us feel like we're jettisoning exactly things yeah. that we care about. I think we have to think about what it means to love. Right? And, uh, and what it means to love your country. There are a couple of passages in my book that I just thought were really powerful when I came across them in my research, some quotes. Uh, one was um, um, by George McGovern uh, in 1970s, early 70s, and I don't have the quote exact at all, but um, you know, essentially saying that what it is to love your country, you, you, can, be, you can be critical of it, right? You can love your country and aspire for it to be more faithful. So you can love a country and be deeply grieved about racial injustice. If you love your country, you ought to be deeply grieved about racial injustice. That doesn't mean that we all have to have the exact same path forward, but we should be able to come around that and about inequality. And about, I mean, if we look around, we know that there are so many problems around us in our society and that we are all, um, as citizens, I don't know if implicated is the right word, uh, but I, I will say implicated as citizens, right? as members of this, of this community, of this nation, and we should be able to love our country by holding up its ideals. Right? We've got some wonderful ideals that this country was founded on. And critics of this country aren't throwing out those ideals. They are just saying, let's do even better, right? Uh, I mean, to be even more controversial, when I was reading the 16, <laughs> when I was reading the 1619 project, right? Some of those essays, and one kind of um, surprised and not surprised by the backlash against that. First, let me say, as a historian, it's totally okay to critique historical works, right? We do that all the time. I tell my students that. I mean, what it is to be a historian is to fight. We fight all the time, we fight other historians, but we do it in our footnotes, we do it in our arguments, we do it with evidence, we follow rules. But we are always contesting, even works that we admire and love, we're gonna find flaws in them, right? That's just what we do. Um, So there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, there's some good in this project and then there are some shortcomings, right? We need, in in the historical profession, we have space to do that. In the broader public, it seems like there's no space to do that at all. But when I was reading the 1619 Project, what really jumped out at me was this aspirational sense of liberty and justice for all, right? It was not liberty and justice for all, and that is historically irrefutable. Uh, so what do we do? Do we pretend like it was, insist that it was, and say we're all cool here? 
and insist that it is? Or do we say, these were some really amazing ideals, and we think that they are consistent with our what God calls us to be as a nation? Let's work together on those, and let's listen to people who can tell us exactly how it is not liberty and justice for all, and let's see what we can do together and at least aspire to achieve greater liberty and justice for all. This doesn't have to be super controversial. This could be something that we all come together around. Sometimes that's uncomfortable to hear. Um, it seems that as a country, we're comfortable with amending things to make them better in our country. And we've done it multiple times. I don't remember. I'm not a historian. How many, how many amendments do we have? We have a lot of amendments. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot. I'm looking over so much to know that answer. Um, but one of, the things, one of the questions that came in yesterday is about rewriting history. And when you hear the subject, re- rewriting history, yeah. what comes to mind first? Oh, I mean, if you if it's the term like revisionist history is often the kind of puts more negative con, uh, content or, or context around it. But um, rewriting history, I mean, any historian who's writing history is uh, I don't know if we're rewriting it, but what we do is we examine evidence. We bring sometimes new questions to the evidence. Sometimes we find new evidence. Right? Sometimes we're looking in new places. And so what I'm doing differently than many historians of evangelicalism is I'm looking very seriously at consumer culture. Um, and so that's going to present a different uh, picture of evangelicalism than if you're just reading the theologies and the sermons. Right? And I, I do both, but I'm bringing this into it. So without rewriting history, it's writing history. It might be revising what we thought we knew. It's not going to displace those other histories. And I say this all the time. My work doesn't displace previous histories of evangelicalism, many of which were written by my friends and mentors. Uh, But now we have to say, how does this view of evangelicalism, especially one informed by looking at popular culture and with the lens of gender, race, and power, how does it come into conversation with these other histories? Looking at the institutions, looking at leadership, looking at theologies, because there's truth in, in all of them, and really what it, what it comes down to is how do each of these inform the other? And uh, so again, like in historical spaces, I love being a historian, I love being an academic, and we have conferences all the time, and we just, we're kind of ruthless sometimes, and we're critiquing, and we're questioning, and we're challenging, and then we go out for drinks afterwards. Um, and there's a healthy culture of disagreement, and there are rules for engagement. Ultimately, is this truth? And not a capital T truth, but is this accurate? Did you get this right? And if I'm saying you didn't, I have to bring my evidence that convinces not just you, but the other historians in the room. Right? That's what we do. So we're always revising what was out there. Um, and that's just the nature of the discipline, and it's exciting, and it's creative, and, um, and it's, it's important. So you can have this uh, kind of scientific, sterile approach to history where, okay, I can disagree, you can disagree with me, we can fight in footnotes and go back and forth, that's great. But for some of us, it feels like the ground is shifting beneath our feet because we don't have the same experience uh, studying these things like you do. And so for you to say, no, uh, this is actually not good, it's bad, like that, that re- requires a lot of our self-understanding, our understanding of our country, our, our, our yeah. church. Yeah. How come that's easy for you to do uh, at almost like a distance, but for some of us, I'm like, wait a minute, this is messing up my whole childhood, right? That's a really good question. Um, 
and it's taken two hours to get that response. I'm glad. So I actually wrote about precisely this. I I, was asked, a lot, okay. I write a lot. Yeah. I do. Um, I have things to say, um, <laughs> and I have a very hard time saying no. Uh, when asked to write something, especially in this case, it was the New York Times that asked me to write an essay on belief in history. And at first, I was terrified, um, and then I thought, all of a sudden, it just, it just it almost immediately, the whole essay came came into into view. I knew exactly what I wanted to write, and um, so you can you can look it up. I wrote it, and it is it is about exactly this question: and why have evangelicals have had such a shocked response to Jesus and John Wayne? And this is not just the ones who don't like it. This is also especially the ones who do like it. Uh, but the, it, it's this kind of shock. Of, on the one hand, they're saying, this is the story of my life, and let me tell you about it. And on the other hand, it is, I never understood how all this fit together, and how could I not have seen? And I reflected on that, and I, I, I described how everybody does this, but white evangelicals do it better or worse than everybody else, it seems to me. They control their own narratives. They tell their own stories. And they tell their own histories. And they tell their own histories in a way where they are the heroes, and where they are on God's side, and where God uh, um, helps them to flourish. Again, I'm a Calvinist, <laughs> so uh, I'm a little more comfortable with the, the maybe self-critique. Uh, but. I'm also a historian, and so I, for, for two decades, I have been reading just American histories, where Billy Graham pops up sometimes. And Billy Graham, turns out, is one of, in my section on Billy Graham, is one of the most difficult for evangelicals to stomach. I did not grow up in a home that, that idolized, that's a strong word, but that, that held up Billy Graham as this, as this Christian hero. Because I grew up in an immigrant Dutch, like, kind of subculture, and Billy Graham wasn't one of ours. Uh, he was respected, for the, but he was not embraced, right? And, that's um, probably similar to a lot of Church Christ people. Okay, so, right? so yeah. same thing, yeah. yes, that's right. We have a lot of similarities, right? We're kind of evangelical adjacent, maybe, is a, is a word. Probably get rid of that capitalism. <laughs> So within, within um, my tradition, it, it was much easier for me to encounter the Billy Graham of the historical record and be a little bit, and, and you can say, yes, he wanted to evangelize the world and share Jesus with the world. He did. But what did that Christianity look like? There was a lot of substance to it, and he had a lot of rules about what women should do, and he had ideas about whiteness and about civil rights and what was too soon and what was too much, and... And there's a lot of the, the faith that he transmitted as he was converting people. He was not just converting people to Christ. He was converting people to his understanding of Christ. And, and then what that all meant for this community. And for me, as a somewhat outsider, it was much easier for me to see that. Whereas for insiders who, and this is where you get to the popular culture and the Christian publishing industry, it is massive. And so many Christians only read Christian books and only read books that are published by, I mean, maybe some fiction or so um, can slip in, maybe a little nonfiction, but about their own faith, they're reading 
books that have been vetted by Christian publishers. And this is a massive industry that has been, to a large extent, almost invisible to people outside of these Christian spaces. Like when I was writing Jesus and John Wayne, at one point my editor like flagged some of my um, um, publication numbers of some of these best-selling Christian books. And he's like, Kristen, this can't be accurate. Uh, these numbers are inflated. Let me tell you how publishing works. Publishers always inflate the, the numbers. He's like, so where did you find these numbers? And I said, well, it was in the New York Times. And he's like, oh, never mind then. They're accurate. <laughs> um, right, but, but the thing is, these books don't make the New York Times bestsellers list because that list is curated. And they know most of the New York Times readers don't want to read that stuff. And so it becomes invisible. Uh, but in this world, there are rules about what you can say, how you can say it, and there is a Billy Graham, and there is an evangelicalism that is presented in these spaces, and it is lovely, but it is not the whole story. You just said it's lovely, but it's not the whole story. I know some of your readers don't feel like you think there's much lovely in the evangelical church, yeah. and I think they been in the sermon to listen to you, they, they can understand more that this is your discipline, your yeah. responsibility is to uh, improve by critique and this sort of yeah. engagement. Yeah, yeah I have um, had that critique some. Uh, it, it, it makes sense if you read Jesus and John Wayne. Um, the subtitle is How White Evangelicals Fracture the Nation. I feel like... And you're proud of that, right? Like that's, <laughs> that subtitle seems to be... It's a little harsh. Inflammatory, maybe. Uh, it took three months to come to that. Uh, at first, it was not my first choice. It was not my 40th choice. We went back and forth. And I, but I, I will say I'm happy with it. I don't even remember. It's gone through so many iterations. At one point, uh, my, my editor and I totally disagreed on subtitles. So it just went around and around and around. And finally, we agreed on one that had the phrase cult of masculinity in the subtitle. I don't remember what the whole thing was. And then it went to the, this is in trade publishing. There are many hoops. It went to the sales team. And they're like, yeah, no. Um, you, no, trade no, means no. just like normal books, not academic. Yeah, yeah, just popular, um, um, popular publishing. So um, then they said that masculinity is too long of a word, and so is militarism. And I always considered this my book on white evangelical masculinity and militarism, and so we had to go back to the drawing board. Um, and at that point, then I thought, what does this book? Why does this book really matter, and for whom? And that's when I came up with the corruption of faith and fractured a nation. Fractured, fractured a nation because it matters for everybody, all Americans, uh, even those who aren't evangelical, uh, because of the effects of, uh, on our political landscape. And um, more, more can be said on that. But the corrupted of faith is the part that I really thought carefully about uh, because it is not a historical claim. The book is a work of history, but that part is not a historical claim. But that's when I thought. Who, for whom does this story matter? And that's why I thought it matters for evangelicals. And I'm going to speak to them in the subtitle on their own terms. Okay, Bible-believing Christians, right? Let's take a look at this history. And let's take a look at how Bible-believing Christians have dismissed whole portions of the scriptures, have said, love your neighbor, love your enemies. That doesn't apply to us. Not right now. Um, you can't teach a boy to be a man by telling him to turn the other cheek. This is what they're saying. And then they're, they're messing with historical doctrines of the Trinity in order to prop up uh, the subordination of women. 
right? These are the things as we talk about, you know, ideals of masculinity. Where does the fruit of the spirit come in? And so that was me talking to evangelicals on their own terms. And I was actually given the choice in the end, uh, uh, transformed a faith. And I actually went with corrupted, and I thought that was more honest for what I was depicting. Um, so, so where's the beauty? <laughs> Sorry, that was it. Uh, I have to get to the beauty part, the lovely part. Um, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's not a lie in Jesus' But let me say, um, so I actually wrote a first book. Um, before Jesus and John Wayne, that's called uh, A New Gospel for Women, for Women, Catherine Bushnell and the Challenge of Christian Feminism. I talked about it at the lunch session yesterday. But when evangelicals say, you know, why do you hate us so much? Uh, and why do you make us look so bad? I say, I have read my first book. It is about an amazing evangelical woman who was an anti-trafficking activist in the late 19th and early 20th century was an internationally known activist and an amazing Christian woman, and she did this all out of her evangelical faith. But she also knew Hebrew and Greek, and she also realized at a certain point that as she was working with abused women and with prostitutes, that the people who were most working against her in communities were Christians. And the men who were perpetrating abuses against women were Christians. And so ultimately she concluded that the crime must be the fruit of the theology. And so she re-examined translations and saw so many instances of misogynistic translations of the Christian scriptures. And she re-translated and reinterpreted the scriptures. Now, that makes evangelicals, I think, look pretty good if you think it's a good thing to preach the liberation of women, right? And so uh, it, what you say is good and lovely, I'm going to say that some of my critics might not agree with me on all of those kind of uh, characterizations. Uh, because my first book actually presents evangelicalism in a pretty good light. And, um, and this one is a different story. Um, because I should say this is not a history of evangelicalism. Jesus and John Wayne. It's a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism as they are intertwined. And it centers questions of gender, race, and power. It is not the whole story, but it is an important story. And when I say at the end of the book, this is, it's not evangelicalism, but it is a dominant strand. Because if you are not a part of this, I guarantee you will bump up against it in evangelical spaces, and you will have to negotiate with it or against it. Good. All right, let me close with two things. First of all, uh, yesterday in my talk, I might have included a story about my friend who's a Marine, partly just because I thought it was ironic that you were going to be here and I would tell a story about a military guy in my talk. So uh, I thought that was really funny. And uh, to myself, I laughed because I was right. Um, so that was the first thing. Second thing, I just want to say thank you from uh, all of us here at Everdyne. Uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you for the work that you've done. The new book... Uh, We're, uh, it's not going to be out for a bit. It's called Live, Laugh, Love, and it's a cultural history of white Christian womanhood. Is uh, Four Words by Liz Gilbert, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it will be fun. It will be fun. Okay, well, uh, I just want to say thank you for being with us.
and uh, we'll give you an honorary Church of Christ membership uh, sticker. Thank you. Thank you.